we so uh, do I do I shut the no so here we are in the second half of class uh, the the lecture tonight is called uh, but will it be on the test uh, facts interpretation, opinions, and imagery in the study of globalization since 1492. And we left off uh, with some discussion about the Hagia Sophia, this monument in uh, the former Istanbul, which is now called, uh, or the former uh, Constantinople, which is now called Istanbul. If we can go to the docu-camera, um, where are we talking about? Where? So between the uh, Black Sea and the Aegean, a very strategic strait there. Um, and if you look at this map, which is an old map of uh, this part of the world, you'll notice that uh, all of this green area is called uh, the uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So this is uh, the picture of this part of the world that uh, I uh, I was introduced to in uh, public school, uh, Iran, Afghanistan. This part in here is the Soviet Union. Uh, and this is uh, the domain of the former Ottoman Empire. It's also where the Russians and the, Ru where the Russians, before there was a Soviet Union in 1917, there was Tsarist Russia. And uh, the British Empire has its base in uh, India. So this is the, the, the zone where there was tremendous amount of tension between the Im imperial expansion of Russia and the imperial expansion of the British Empire. Um, and uh, this is one of the most uh, historically contentious parts of the world. It's uh, kind of a a meeting place uh, where many of the peoples of the world converge. There's travel routes th through here, very ancient civilizations. Um, if you look at this map, more recent map, you'll see that uh, there is a, a whole bunch of new countries, or well, there are very old polities, but uh, 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 Tajikistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan. Uh, so there, these are new republics or republics, parts of the Soviet Union that were never very well integrated into the Soviet Union. And uh, certainly the uh, US government would have cooperated with Islamic uh, regimes, uh, Islamic activists to encourage uh, these polities to break away from the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, and uh, this uh, Caspian Sea here, this is um, where the largest uh, resources of oil and gas are, unexploited oil and gas. So there is a lot of uh, politics uh, around uh, who's going to get access to this oil and gas. Uh, where is uh, where are the pipelines going to go? Uh, Unical was uh, talking about um, um, building a pipeline 
through Afghanistan and getting out to uh, the ocean. Now, of course, if you think about the politics of what's going on, uh, the great area of growth of middle-class people is in China and India. Huge populations where, uh, because of the economic prosperity, uh, whole new classes of people are in a position to purchase automobiles and to live the lifestyle of middle class in North America. So, of course, where is the oil going to come from? Who is going to supply the oil? So one, one theory would be U.S. companies bring it out this way. And uh, so, you know, before the invasion of Afghanistan, there was a lot of politics around what was going to happen in Afghanistan. Would Afghanistan become the site for a pipeline? And of course, one approach would be to, to go around here and then by ship bring the oil in here or will China just go and get it uh, directly? So one can read a lot of the politics uh, in the world right now. What, what's going to be the future of this area? And of course, you know, we hear a lot about uh, Iran in the news. We've heard a lot about Iraq in the news, the invasion of Iraq, big big oil reserves all through here. But it's it's in this uh, Caspian Sea area that uh, there is you know, the, the great liquid gold of our time, oil and gas. And of course, the, the uh, demand is rising so quickly. Uh, and uh, it, it's such a big question. Who is going to be in a position to, to, to get this to market? Will we keep the same type of technology? Uh, will we go to hydrogen? Uh, the United States is having to deal with the fact that it has an addiction to oil and gas. Uh, there has been an assertion uh, by George Bush Sr., you know, the American way of life is not up for negotiation. We're going to have our SUVs. That's, that's our way of life. Uh, but now there's starting to be second thoughts uh, in, in, in the United States. So I, I thought uh, uh, this contrast between this map which presented all of this territory as if it was some kind of single polity. And, and the reality that we now see uh, is quite dramatic. Um, so let me uh, change gears a little bit away from the Ottoman Empire. And uh, take us back to last week. Now, one of the challenges with these video conferences, of course, you, you're inviting people uh, and they have the preoccupations that they have and the expertise that they have, and, and it's better if you can encourage people to talk about what they want to talk about. Uh, everybody's doing this as volunteers. Uh, so Professor Roncourt, um, I found his presentation quite compelling, quite clear. Usually when I hear a... Uh, presentation that is as succinct and clear as that, I think to myself, the person has some mastery of the topic. To make something clear and simple and direct is uh, takes sometimes a lot more effort than uh, something that you know might seem sophisticated, but in fact is prone to jargon. And, and uh, so um, uh, 
of course, it's my challenge to try to integrate this into a coherent uh, curriculum that makes sense in a course called Globalization Since 1492. And so when you go on the internet, when you go in video conferences, when you ha invite in people and say, let's have a discussion, let's interact, you can't really predict exactly how it's going to go. And in fact, you want it to be spontaneous. You want uh, there to be some free flow. Um, so uh, I am, was trying to reflect back then, and I'm, and I'm going to continue that, uh, uh, where I'm trying to show, well, this discussion about how you how you protest, how you do activism, how you do uh, protest and uh, dissidence. If we go to the, I remember the, if we go to the docu camera here, um, this was the the title of the lecture: protest and dissidence as a force of globalization. So although uh, it might seem that we're talking on a on a level that doesn't go down too deep, I thought it interesting to look at the word protest. And to reflect on the reality that you know the, a very important word in our culture, which defines the the preoccupations, the orientation, the the beliefs of a lot of people, uh, Protestantism comes out of an, uh, a protest against uh, the perceived corruption of the of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, so to to present this discussion about you know what might happen in student union politics or uh, this protest here or that protest there, to try to uh, set that discussion of our recent times and recent experiences in a, in a deeper sense that uh, let's remember that this is how history tends to move, move forward. The, this, is, this is the volatile agency in, in, in history. So um, this, this illustration, I found it a very uh, useful illustration, very clear, this idea of selling indulgences, uh, essentially selling the idea that the Pope will intervene with God if you've committed a sin and you're feeling, well, I might be headed for hell for the rest of eternity, um, but if I can purchase an indulgence and the Pope will intervene with God in my behalf, uh, I might uh, have a different destiny. I mean, it seems so absurd in a way, but uh, you know, the, we're talking about history here—a different context, different time. And in, in, in a way, this is this is the old, old theme. You know, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So usually, protests are directed against those who are controlling power and monopolizing power. And there is a sense that this monopolization of power creates the opportunities for wrongful exploitation of uh, of, of that power. And uh, we talked about uh, uh, Luther, Martin Luther, uh, the 95 propositions or theses, which essentially point out uh, the, the corruption involved here. And then uh, another uh, powerful uh, vehicle of the Protestant Reformation is uh, John Calvin. And, uh, John Calvin, um, he comes up with this idea of a, an elect. He's very influential in Geneva, which becomes a kind of Protestant theocracy and becomes a, a, a hotbed of these ideas. And he's one of the leading uh, voices of that society. 
And uh, as I was reading this, it did occur to me that there is uh, some connection here to the way we're talking about time. You know, I, my background is in history. And, you know, we, we rhyme off, well, this happened in 1492, and this happened in uh, 1653, and this happened in 1715. But if you really stop and think, you know, identifying these moments in history in a, in a time scale that is based on the life of Christ, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty s uh, severe cultural w way of marking things. Like, what, as a historian, shouldn't we talk about and think about time? Time is uh, it's a, it's a, it's a difficult, uh, difficult subject, and yet what can be more central to uh, how things are connected? I think of, for instance, you know, the great, uh, the great cathedrals built in Europe in the Middle Ages. And, uh, you know, this glorification of, uh, of the spiritual, of the divine. I guess the Masons who built these cathedrals tended to see themselves as a, an elite group, and there's much theory about the Freemasons, you know, having a great role in uh, making decisions, a sort of secret uh, brotherhood. Uh, but think of the period where suddenly the, the focus shifts, and suddenly these big clocks that are built in the town square, uh, the idea of making time uniform, of having a central uh, announcement of what time it is in the community. I mean, in a way, the uh, real machine that drives the Industrial Revolution, is it the steam engine or is it the clock? I mean, the, once the clock starts to regulate us and put us in, a, in conformity with one another, you can regulate more and more people, it's, it's a huge uh, breakthrough. So I, I kind of see you know, from the, from the religious preoccupation to the secular preoccupation, you start to look at the, the clock and, and the great uh, science that goes into it and the technology that goes into it. And oftentimes the clock ends up being on like the city hall or the legislature. I mean, Big Ben is a symbol of the British Parliament. So it, it speaks of, uh, of, uh, of you know, this uh, effort to regulate according to um, a very precise uh, vehicle. And then, just as standard time is made universal around the world, Sir Sanford Fleming gets these 24 time zones, along comes Albert Einstein and says, no, no, time isn't what we thought it was at all, and blasts apart a whole paradigm. And I, I come to think that is the, the crisis of the 20th century, this, this crisis of relativism, what we thought was universal turns out not to be. And yet there are universals, but who would have imagined that the constant is the speed of light? What a weird idea, you know, that, that the speed of light turns out to be the constant. So if you're, the speed time is going all has to do with what trajectory you're on in relationship to the passage of light through space. And as you approach the speed of light, time slows down. This is what, uh, what uh, Einstein was saying. So after Einstein comes Franz Boas. And if you read the, uh, about the World's Columbian Exposition, I kind of emphasize Franz Boas's role. It's, it's in the Web CT. So when I came across this phrase here about uh, John Calvin, I connected it. Man's purpose in life, then, I mean, is not to try to work out his salvation. For this has already been determined, but to honor God. Um, while Calvin did not 
it's, it's like God, of course, God knows the future. God knows the past. God's, God knows the future. So God already knows who's going to go to heaven. So the, it's already predestined who's going to go to heaven. And this, is a, this has powerful implications because it says that there is only a, a, a group, a small group, who are eligible go, to go to heaven. Other kind of human beings who are not in this predestined group, no matter what they believe, no matter how hard they try, they, they can't, uh, they can't, they're not qualified. So, um, so Calvin um, is uh, an important figure. So I'll go back to my chronology, chronology here, and, and uh, we'll, we'll go on, uh, along that line. For 1541, John Calvin leads the radical expression of Protestant extremism adopted in Geneva. Henceforth, Calvinism, which will form the basis of Puritan New England's early identity, signifies the position that God has pre-selected a small elite of humanity whose members are the sole individuals eligible for admission into heaven. This sense of divine sanction adhering to the Old Testament Israelites has continued to permeate U.S. preoccupations with providential mission, American exceptionalism, so providential mission, American exceptionalism, manifest destiny, a very powerful phrase uh, with religious connotations. Uh, manifest destiny is a phrase invented in 1845 to say uh, U.S. can go into Texas and take and annex Texas, and it's nobody's business. That's their manifest destiny. Uh, but the phrase describes a phenomena that is older than in 1845. And, and some would say the United States in the Cold War or the War on Terror, there is this sense that, that there's a manifest destiny. There's a, a sanction, a, a mandate coming from God that puts the United States in a different position than other countries. Um, and this goes back to John Calvin, I'm arguing. Uh, a tradition of evangelical Protestantism whose members deny the legitimacy of separation of church and state. So uh, just to read that phrase again, this sense of divine sanction. And of course, you can read this, you can pull this off WebCT. Everybody has the ability with your student number to get into WebCT. So you can read this, at your, this whole chronology at your leisure. Um, this sense of divine sanction adhering to the Old Testament Israelites has continued to permeate U.S. preoccupations with providential mission, American exceptionalism, manifest destiny, and the tradition of evangelical Protestantism whose members deny the legitimacy of separation of church and state. The early literature written by the founders of New England and Virginia holds abundant references to the European pioneers of these districts as the makers of a new Israel, a new Canaan, a new Jerusalem as God's chosen people with a providential mission on earth. The language of providential mission of the United States would find new forms of expression recently in the context of the Cold War and the War on Terror. Calvinist notions would permeate the religious preoccupations of the anti-monarchists in the English Civil War. Cromwell was a Protestant. He was uh, rebelling against the idea of the uh, the Anglicans as, as a state church. Uh, Calvinism notions would permeate the religious preoccupations of the anti-monarchists in the English Civil War, the Dutch Boers in South Africa, and of the, or, of the orange Protestantism of 
crown uh, loyalists in, in Northern Ireland. So against the Reformation is something called the Counter-Reformation. So, the, United, so, so the, the Roman Catholic Church is dealing with the fact that uh, there's a revolt in their ranks. These protests are spreading. And uh, as it turns out, you know, there's a new country that emerges out of the Spanish Empire. It's called the Netherlands. It's part of this revolt against uh, Roman Catholicism. Uh, England, with Henry VIII seeking a divorce and the Pope not giving it to him, creates his own church, a Protestant church. And these countries that are Protestant countries tend to be very dynamic economically. Because once you break out of the idea that uh, you must communicate with God through the hierarchy of the church, and there's a whole host of priests and bishops and archbishops and the Pope, and only the Pope is in direct communication with God, and you must go through this hierarchy. Uh, if, you, if you seek an indulgence, you must pay for it. Or, uh, once you break away from that and you say, well, individuals should be free to communicate with God directly, and of course, this is very much tied up with literacy and printing, eh? that uh, suddenly you have printing presses, you have the Bible. People can learn to read the Bible. So this, this is very tied up with Protestantism. And I believe that the uh, concept, if you, if you can break away from the, the f structure of the church, well, in business, this kind of frees you to be an entrepreneur. Uh, and a middle class tends to take shape in in Netherlands and, and England, and, and Germany, too, is a, a big part of the Reformation. Uh, it's interesting that you know, the founder of the Reform Party, he, he is the son of uh, Ernest Manning, Preston Manning, um, and this comes out of religion. This comes out of uh, Reformation religion, evangelical Protestantism. Um, and so this Calvinism tends to be a very uh, extreme form of Protestant, Protestantism, very evangelical. Billy Graham, you, you express yourself. If, you, if, the, if, the, if the Lord moves you, you, you express that. So, so the Roman Catholic Church have to contend with this. So they come up with the Counter-Reformation. And I'm trying to, you know, in, in a sense, this is all part of where is the West? Who is the West? You know, what is the history of the West? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm addressing this. So, so remember earlier in the, in the lecture, I referred to this article on uh, 1534 to 1540. Ignatius Loyola founds the Society of Jesus as a means of stopping and countering the expansion of the Protestant Reformation. The controversial Jesuit order become an elite vehicle of scholarly Roman Catholicism. Jesuits become celebrated teachers to the ruling classes of Europe and the Western Hemisphere. They hear the confessions of kings, queens, and government ministers. Can you imagine what it means for the king of a country or the queen of a country to go to confession and say, forgive me, Father, I have sinned. You know, I've killed so-and-so or I've assassinated so-and-so. I mean, to be in, if you're taking the confession of a king, in a way, you're trumping the, the power of a king, eh? and, and you're giving that king the most secret kind of explanation and, and, and advice. So, so this was a powerful position to be in. Uh, the Jesuit order grows to be especially uh, renowned for the scope and ambition 
of its missionary enterprises. Jesuits become Western civilization's religious pioneers in China and Japan. They adopt the role of evangelical partners and proprietors in the empire building of Spain and France, especially in the Western Hemisphere. You know the story of the Jesuit martyrs at uh, Jean de Brébeuf and Lallemand are burned at the stake by the dastardly Iroquois who we discussed, you know, the people of the League of the Haudenosaunee. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church build this up. Have you ever been to Martyr Shrine in Midland, Ontario, St. Marie among the Hurons across the road? You know, this was the, one of the first missions, major missions in, in Canada, in the interior of Canada. And uh, the Jesuits became martyrs, and this martyrdom was publicized. And in a certain sense, this was the final fulfillment when you, you know, leave your society, you're, you're the educated elite of your society. You go to the end of the world out of the conviction that you have something to share, and, and you're bringing religion uh, to uh, people who wouldn't have it otherwise. You're giving them possibility of everlasting life. The Chinese were not very, what did they want from the West? There wasn't very much that the Chinese didn't have internally. But they accepted the Jesuits because the Jesuits were good astronomers. They did have some things that the uh, Manchu court could, could use. Um, as I see it, the Jesuits are major uh, agents of globalization because they go out all over the world uh, many places in the world, they attach themselves to the Spanish Empire, to the French Empire, um, and uh, uh, they learn about the indigenous cultures, and they, to some extent, assimilate the indigenous cultures. In China, they dress as Chinese, they speak Chinese, they learn to conduct themselves according to the customs and the sense of uh, politeness and you know, respect. Meanwhile, back in Europe, they're saying, they're, they've gone native. They, they're violating uh, the, the, the traditions they're supposed to be upholding. Um, so the Jesuits are often very controversial. Sometimes they are subjected to uh, very radical um, efforts to push them away or stop them doing what they're doing because you know, they, t they tend to uh, uh, exercise power and that makes some people uh, nervous. So, they seek to create uh, Indian theocracies, a goal they successfully achieved for a time in Paraguay. And this memory of Paraguay when the Jesuits come into Washington territory, for instance, they're seeking to create another uh, theocracy. I mean, there's different ways you can do empire building. You can move the Indians aside or move them onto reserves or eliminate them altogether. Or you can treat the Indians as the future citizens of your own religious community and, and try to convert them. Uh, this happened in Metlakulta. There was an Anglican theocracy on the west coast of Canada. Um, William Duncan was the, was the leader of it. And there was this whole theory about you know, Aboriginal self-government within the framework of Christianity. Um, but that was an Anglican uh, experiment. This is, Paraguay was the sort of farthest advanced uh, uh, experiment in that, and you know, look it up in Google. It's if you're if you're if you're interested, if you're curious. The Jesuits' busy network of worldwide interactive communications became a formidable catalyst of intellectual and cultural globalization. So they write about these societies in Canada, and they write about them sometimes in a very flattering way, and saying although they don't know about God, they obviously have a sense of the divine, and they respect their elders, and they raise their children well, and they're 
They seem very moralistic. And uh, intellectuals read this in Europe and say, aha, look at us. Our society's corrupt. It's, it's overripe. It's rotten. Look at you know, our Versailles and these people with their wigs and their powder. And, you know, and then they, they poo in the little pots. They don't have plumbing. And it's kind of this whole facade, you know, uh, Versailles, you know, uh, could be seen as an expression of, this has just gone too far, this idea of being sophisticated, civilized, makes people into ridiculous uh, creations. We should go back to a more natural state. You know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau writes about this. Uh, Karl Marx reads Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I mean, there's uh, sort of Jean-Jacques Rousseau leads in one direction, and John Locke reads leads in another direction. John Locke, the kind of philosopher of private property,